I suppose, Lord, a great many of us have read that really brief account of one of the most astounding acts in the history of mankind hundreds of times. We are well familiar with those words. They resonate with us. And yet they are also so familiar, it's just easy to run our eyes over them, nod our heads, and move on. Father, might we be grasped by this passage this morning. Might it take hold of us. Might it transform us. We have gathered this morning, our Father, for worship, to enjoy fellowship, to be with one another, at the end of the morning to enjoy a meal and to reflect on Your grace towards us. But Father, woe to us if we come superficially and flippantly about this act of worship. Woe to us if we consider that we have gleaned all that there is to glean from this passage and this story. It is one of the things that will captivate us about our astounding Savior for all of eternity, that He took on manhood. And here Matthew recounts it with such simplicity that we might be tempted to overlook the profundity of the arrival of the King. And so as we consider the story again, might we, as I've already prayed, be transformed by it, given hope through it, and cling to You and our Savior all the more because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My parents and I were born in Canada. I got to Texas as quickly as I could after the fact, though. And I suppose it was part of being a part of the British colony that gave my mother in particular a delight in the British monarchy. She was always intrigued by the British family and all things about the Queen. And so, even while Mom wasn't particularly a TV watcher, it was on the day that Prince Charles and Lady Di got married... Early, early, early in the day in the United States of America, when I got up that morning, mom had already had her eyes glued to the television for hours watching the pageantry. I guess that should have been in my mind when Lady Di's son, William, married Kate a few years ago. And I should have anticipated, though I didn't anticipate it until the event showed up, that my girls might similarly be captivated by a new princess. And so that night before the wedding, I had a house full of girls at my place, complete with tiaras, poofy skirts, tea, biscuits, and an all-night wedding-watching party. 
On both occasions, let it be noted, I had a full, complete, and satisfying night of sleep. I wasn't quite as captivated with the coming of royalty. More than one person has been excited by the coming and advent of royalty. When we consider the arrival of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, however, He arrived very differently than the way most royalty arrives. In fact, when we think about the arrival of King Jesus, the word unique is really appropriate. The primary meaning for the word unique is, quote, existing as the only one or as the sole example, singular, solitary in type or characteristics. That is exactly what we mean when we say that the arrival of King Jesus was unique. It was singular. It was unrepeated. It was the only one of its kind in the history of the world. As I noted in my prayer, Matthew tells of the unique arrival of Jesus in quite unremarkable language and with simplicity and brevity though it was highly remarkable both in its truthfulness and in the realities behind it. As we look at this very familiar story this morning in Matthew chapter 1, we will discover that the arrival of King Jesus was the unique arrival of a king. Nothing ever would rival the arrival of Jesus as the king. As we look at this passage this morning, let us discover and delight in five revelations of the arrival of King Jesus. Five revelations of the arrival of King Jesus. The first is that when he arrived, he came to a unique home. He came to a unique home. And the uniqueness of it was that it was astoundingly humble. This week, Regine received an email from Queen Elizabeth. It maybe wasn't quite so remarkable, though. I think it was one of those things that goes out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But she showed it to me and, in fact, forwarded it to me. It had all kinds of information about Queen Elizabeth and and her family. It had a nice story about King George VI, who was the Queen's father, and an accompanying family picture. Quite a nice family, don't you think it? Might be a family picture like you and I have in our homes of some of our family members. It also had a picture of King George's family. Oh, okay, I just went blank. But anyway, there we go. Um, King George's family looked a little bit different than your family and my family, didn't it? That's King George kind of standing off behind the queen by himself. Kind of a stately group of people, don't you think? And when you think of a king, isn't that what you think of? Power, authority, wealth, opulence, dignity. The family into which Jesus was born was just a little bit more humble. A little bit unique for a king. Matthew gives no details about the family, though he mentions the family members by name. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. His mother Mary 
had been betrothed to Joseph. We, we know a little bit about Mary, not very much. We know that Mary was from Nazareth. She likely came from a very poor family. We think that she perhaps also was part of the Davidic line in Luke chapter 3 when Luke gives the chronology, the genealogy rather, of Jesus. He mentions an Eli, and we think that Eli may have been Mary's father, not Luke's father. Um, so it would have been Luke, or not Luke, Joseph's father. Um, he would have been Joseph's father-in-law and Mary's father. That's one supposition. We're not going to die on that hill, but that's one idea. So perhaps she also is in the Davidic line. We know from John chapter 19 that she had at least one sister. We believe that Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 was her cousin. She was a relative and probably a cousin. Elizabeth, of course, was married to the priest Zacharias. That's about all that we know about Mary. Not very much. And what we do know is largely unremarkable. A young girl from a poor family in a nondescript family, in a, in, a, in a nondescript circumstance. We know a little bit more about her spiritual life from Luke chapter 1. We read part of that this morning as our call to worship the Advent account, Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. We understand from that that she is well-trained in the Scriptures. In that song, she quotes from two different psalms, Psalm 103 and Psalm 107, and there are multiple other Old Testament allusions in that song as well. So she obviously knew well the Scriptures, though she was young and though she came from a humble family. She had a solid understanding of theology. We find in that song her first delight, her major delight, was in, in the glory of God, the exaltation of God. So the first thing she says in verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She's, she's all about living for God and, and wanting to exalt Him and lift Him up. She clearly understood grace. Verse 48, He has high regard for the humble state of His bond slave. She understands that she is in a low place she is not of significance. She is not of power. She is not of authority. She's in a humble and small place. She understands the retribution of God, verses 51 and 52. And she understands the eternal covenantal relationship between God and Israel. He has given help to Israel, his servant, verse 54, in the remembrance of his mercy. So God made a promise to Israel, and he has remembered that. Verse 55, even as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So she understands God's made a covenant with Israel. It's an eternal covenant. And she understands that covenantal relationship. And so she's well trained in the scriptures. She's well trained in theology. But perhaps most importantly, Mary acted on what she knew. She was submissive to the will of the Lord. We understand this from Luke chapter 1 verse 38. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord May it be done to me according to your word. Just, I'm, I'm willing to submit myself to you and follow you and do whatever you call me to do. We know less about Joseph than we do about Mary. We understand that he worked with wood as a carpenter. We find that in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 55 where those who were accusing Jesus said, Is this not the carpenter's son? He's just a carpenter. He's no one of significance. He's no one of power. He's no one of education. He's not well trained. 
He's just a carpenter. He's just a, a laborer. And we understand from that same account that Joseph had other children with Mary. So he had, Jesus had brothers, also Joseph's sons, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. So he had at least four brothers. Jesus had at least four brothers. Joseph then had at least four sons. And he had at least two daughters as well, verse 56 of Matthew 13. And his sisters, are they not all with us? So there's at least two sisters, inference I think, probably more than that. His sisters, plural, are they not all? Typically wouldn't say, are they not all with us? So two, three, four other sisters. So he had multiple other family members. Joseph apparently died as a young man. He's not mentioned at all in Jesus' teaching ministry. By then it seems that he's already departed. He's no longer alive. And like Mary, there's something about him that is particularly righteous. Verse 19, Matthew recounts for us, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Mary also is called righteous in Luke chapter 1. And it's interesting that that's the attribution for both of these young people. And we don't know exactly how old they were. It says that they were betrothed to be married. Betrothal, a, a commitment to marriage, happened typically quite young. Mary might have been as young as 12 or 13 years of age. Joseph, perhaps a few years older than that. But they almost certainly would have still been in their teens. And even in their teen years, they were recognized as being righteous And by that, we simply mean they're Old Testament believers. Uh, Habakkuk tells us, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man will live by his faith. That is, he will work out his faith. He will live the faith that he has in God for salvation. And that is certainly where Matthew, or excuse me, where Matthew places both Mary and Joseph. They were righteous. And friends, all this points to the humility of Christ's background. Here is a king who is eternal and infinite. And he sets aside all of the glories of heaven to take on finiteness and temporalness in the most humble of circumstances. Never has any king ever stooped so low to take up his rulership as King Jesus. He is a unique king because of his unique home. Notice also and delight in the king's arrival because he came with a unique or in a unique conception, a unique conception. Verse 18 tells us that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. A betrothal is a a marriage arrangement. The marriage would be arranged between the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom. And a contract was negotiated and the groom's family paid a dowry to the bride's family. That dowry helped to pay for the wedding and uh, provided security for the bride and her family in case the, the, the groom would uh, take off before the wedding and divorce the one to whom he was intended. The contract was formal. It was signed in a formal ceremony. It wasn't just something that they agreed to and did behind closed doors. It was done in a public ceremony 
with the two families together, perhaps with other families as well, gathering to watch together. And the participants would take a sip of wine together as a sign of the agreement. At that point, at the signing of the betrothal contract, the couple is considered to be married. Though the marriage had not been yet consummated uh, physically, and they did not yet live together, they were considered married to the point where it would take a divorce to end the marriage. And we're going to see that in verse 19. The couple would not live for each other with each other for at least a year, and the reason for that waiting period was to determine faithfulness of both the groom and the bride, to make sure they're both pure. And it's during that time period, Matthew notes, Mary has been betrothed, the contract is signed, the families are excited, the countdown has begun to when they will come together and live together as husband and wife, and before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now we understand that this is an arranged marriage, and we understand that Perhaps they didn't know each other well. But Joseph, Joseph just seems devastated as you read the story. He's been looking forward. He's been anticipating. He's been planning. Perhaps he's building the house and he's getting everything ready and he's, he's plying his trade and building up his clientele so that he can provide for his wife. And she's pregnant. One commentator says the news struck Joseph like a calamity. And you read the story. And he's he's conflicted. Verse 20 tells us that he had been pondering and thinking. He had considered her pregnancy He'd been considering what to do. And you just, you just see in that word considered this confliction. This is what I can do. This is, this is what I'm allowed to do. But I really don't want to do it. But I, but I don't want to take a woman who's been unfaithful to be my wife. And there's just this tension. And Joseph as the narrator, excuse me, uh, Matthew as the narrator of the story gives us a hint to what's really going on. Verse 18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. It was by the Holy Spirit. The, this, the Son of God was born in the flesh, but He was not born of the flesh. It's a different kind of a birth. What's really remarkable about this, and we find this both in verse 18 and in verse 20, both times it just says... The child is by means of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't tell us how. We, we might take this simply as something like the original act of creation. Where the Spirit of God, in conjunction with God the Father and the Son, work to speak and it just is. Certainly not anything like divine intercourse took place, but simply divine creation. Why is it, why is the virginity of Mary so important? Well, it's important because it protected her reputation. 
It certainly protected the earthly reputation of Jesus Christ. But it did far more than that, didn't it? The virginity of Jesus of, of Mary and the fact that she was not unfaithful, the fact that she was still a virgin at the time while still being pregnant also protects the divine nature of Christ. If Jesus had been conceived naturally, he could not have been divine and he would not have had an infinite nature. And if he did not have an infinite nature, he would not have been able to absorb an infinite wrath of God against sin. He could have endured God's punishment against himself in that he was righteous. But he would not have been able to endure the fullness of God's wrath against all sin of all mankind that would be saved. He could not stand in our place. He could only stand... In his place. If he was not infinite. He could not have been resurrected. And if he could not have been resurrected. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Then our faith would be worthless. Isn't this amazing? Matthew just simply says. She's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She's a virgin. And she's pregnant. With Jesus. Matthew took 17 verses at the beginning of this chapter to explain the earthly lineage of Jesus. And he takes one phrase, one part of one verse to explain the divine lineage of Jesus. Everybody gets wrapped around the axle of, well, how could Jesus be divine? And Matthew makes no argument. He just assumes it. And in that assumption, there, there's an affirmation for us that this is true. Because if it's not true, we tend to, we tend to give lots of reasons and lots of explanation. I mean, how many times have, have you been with a friend and he's trying to justify something? He's trying to rationalize something? I mean, I've done that on occasion. Okay, I've done it a lot of times. And I've had friends look at me and say something like, Thou protesteth too much, methinks. You're talking too much. You're trying to rationalize it too much. There's no rationalization in Matthew. He just says this is the way it is. He assumes it's truthfulness. He allows the truthfulness of the story to stand on its own. Jesus' conception and thus his arrival also is unique, singular, never been repeated. He stands alone among kings by the means through which he arrived on earth and ultimately at his throne. Says one author, the virgin birth is an underlying assumption in everything the Bible says about Jesus. To throw out the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity, the accuracy and authority of Scripture, and a host of other related doctrines that are at the heart of the Christian faith. No issue is more important than the virgin birth to our understanding of who Jesus is. He arrived with a unique conception. He also arrived with a unique role. He came as Savior. Again, Matthew tells us, verse 20, that Joseph considered what was going on And it was while he was considering 
that an angel, um, that an angel appeared to him in a dream. Now, the angel needs to tell him something because Joseph's in the blind. Joseph doesn't understand what's been going on. An angel has appeared previously. We know Gabriel appeared previously to Mary. And after the angel appeared to Mary and explained what was going on with her pregnancy, she immediately went to see Elizabeth. There's no indication at all that she ever went to see Joseph and tell him what was going on. There's no indication in this story that he knows anything. He's he's pondering, he's considering, he's thinking. He's weighing all of his options. Verse 19, he becomes resolute. And it, and it almost seems as if God has allowed him to struggle with attention. What are you going to do? And when he becomes resolute, when he considers... And when he thinks that an angel of the Lord appeared to him. We don't know the name of the angel, but Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. And Gabriel appeared to Mary. And it's logical to assume that Gabriel would have also appeared to Joseph, though we do not know that. This is an unnamed angel. What is important is not the name of the angel, but the message that he carries. He is an angel of the Lord. He belongs to the Lord. He comes from the Lord. He comes from the throne of the Lord with the message of the Lord. And that's what's of significance. And the angel makes two pronouncements about the pregnancy in verse 20 to comfort Joseph in his contemplation. One, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And there were fears that were associated with this marriage, but Joseph is commanded not to be afraid. In fact, the way that the angel says it indicates that Joseph really wasn't afraid yet. And the way he says this suggests that he's saying to Joseph, don't start to become afraid now. You have no reason to be afraid. You have not been afraid. You have not been fearful. You should not be fearful. And then the second thing that he tells him, addresses the reason that he shouldn't be fearful because the child who has been conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, he reiterates what Matthew has told us in verse 18. And here he spells it out for him particularly. And again, there's no indication of how Jesus was conceived in Mary, only that God has divinely superintended the pregnancy. This is the message from God about the pregnancy. This is God's commentary about the pregnancy of Mary. It's of the Holy Spirit. As a well-known Greek theologian and scholar said, A.T. Robertson, the virgin birth is the only intelligible explanation of the incarnation ever offered. And it's exactly what the angel said, both to Mary and to Joseph. And having made that those two declarations about the pregnancy He then moves in verse 21 to make one statement about the uniqueness of the child and his role. One, he will she will bear a son. He will be a a, a male progeny. He'll he'll be a, a male heir, not just a male heir in your family line, but he will be a male heir in the messianic line. And he will have the name Jesus. He'll have the name Jesus. In that culture, in that time, it was typical for the firstborn son to carry the the name of the father. And so what the angel is saying here is, 
unique and unusual. That child didn't come from you, and that child will not have your name. Instead, he will carry a name that will denote his purpose and his mission. Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. And he carries that name because he will save his people from their sins. That name, Jesus, Yeshua, is a Hebrew name that means God saves. So Jesus' name indicates his purpose. This is why he's come. This is, this is his fundamental role. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the one who is coming to rule and to sit on the throne of David. And he is coming to die to atone for people's sin. It has been made clear by Matthew that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah. The Jews wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a political Messiah, not a religious Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah that would free them from the shackles of Rome and allow them to rule the world. Jesus' deliverance was very different. We saw this a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 9. Why did Jesus come? Matthew 9, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed and seeing on their faith, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. That's why he came. That salvation is from every aspect of sin. That salvation is to remove the penalty of sin against us. So that God's wrath is abated, it's pushed away, it's satisfied. And not only that, but the sin is rendered powerless. Punishment is paid for, power is granted to be liberated from the ongoing activity of sin. So that we, we don't have to sin anymore, we're free. God isn't angry with us. And God is delighted with us as we serve Him and do things that aren't sinful. And folks, this is, this is utterly unique for a king. Other kings have certainly died in their roles as king. But this is the only king who has ever died to obliterate sin in the lives of his subjects. And that's why he came. To fulfill a unique role. And friend, if you're here this morning, or if you're watching online and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the heart of the Christmas message, the role that Christ played as one who would come to redeem sinners from sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, fully obeying all of the requirements of God, fully satisfying the law, everything that God demanded, Christ did. And then he died, not because the Jews or the Romans were more powerful than him, not because they overwhelmed him, not because it was right for him to die, not because his body just expired and ran out of gas like ours does. He died intentionally and purposefully in our place so that he might remove our debt of sin against us. And then he rose from the dead demonstrating that God was fully satisfied with the debt that he had paid. And he grants to those who believe in him 
Freedom from sin and freedom from the punishment of sin. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe that you can't pay the debt of your sin and that everything He did fully satisfied what you owed God and that He is worth following. And friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I commend to you, I compel you, I urge you, would you believe in Jesus today? That's that's what Christmas is about. Christmas isn't about a baby. Christmas is about a Savior who came to die for sinners. The king's arrival was unique because of his role, because of his conception, because of his home. Fourthly, because of the promise that was made about him. Verse 22 and verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That is, through the prophet Isaiah. Keep your finger here. We'll be back. But come with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And what Matthew is pointing out to us is that, is that Jesus did not show up in history, just randomly. He had been promised. He had been anticipated. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 7, it's helpful to understand what Matthew will quote, what the angel will quote in just a moment from verse 14. If we look back at at what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7, we have to understand and remember that the nation of Israel is actually two nations. There are the two, nor- excuse me, the ten northern tribes that we know of as Israel. And there are the two southern tribes that we know of as the nation of Judah. So one nation was split into two nations. Israel, the northern tribes, Judah, or Jerusalem sometimes, the southern tribes. And in Isaiah chapter 7, the northern tribes, Israel form an alliance. It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So Ahaz is king in Judah, the southern tribes, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So Aram forms an alliance with Israel to attack Judah, Jew against Jew. And in the midst of that attack, Ahaz and the people of Judah are terrified. Verse 2, it was reported to the house of David saying the Arameans have camped in the Ephraim, that's the northern tribes. His heart, Ahaz's heart, and the hearts of his people shook as trees of the forest shake with the wind. They're absolutely petrified. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to speak to Ahaz and to reassure him. That's verse 3. That reassurance is an astounding act of grace. Because Ahaz is no friend of God. In fact, I was doing a little bit of reading about Ahaz this week. And I found one encyclopedia that said about Ahaz, one biblical encyclopedia that says, Ahaz was, quote, spiritually disastrous for Judah. That's exactly right. He was a terror. He had followed um, ungodly religious practices. He worshipped the stars and the planets. We know from chapter 8 of Isaiah that he consulted with mediums. We know from Second Chronicles chapter 28 that he sacrificed children, human sacrifices, 
And it was provoking to the Lord. And yet God wants to comfort him anyway. He comes with a message through Isaiah. And Isaiah comes with a message, verses 4 to 7, that says the plans of Aram and Israel will not succeed. And he warns Ahaz, if you don't believe this, the calamity is going to come to you as well. That's verse 9. And to convince Ahaz of the certainty of the prophecy, God invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord speaks to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign for yourself. From the Lord your God, make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Ask anything you want as a sign to to indicate to you that I'm telling you the truth. That's what God says. Ask for a sign. I want to give you a sign. And self-righteously, Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor nor will I test the Lord. Now, typically, it's not a good thing to ask for a sign, except when God says, ask for a sign, then it's a good thing. And Ahaz gets all high and mighty all of a sudden, gets religion, quote-unquote, and says, and he self-righteously and foolishly re- refuses to do that. He is rebuked by Isaiah in verse 13. And then in verse 14, Isaiah says, Well, you didn't ask for a sign, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. A sign that Aram and Israel will not be victorious over Judah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Verse 14, Behold, a virgin will be with child, bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The sign offered to Ahaz concerns the birth of a child. Now, the word virgin that's used here speaks about a young woman who's a virgin when she gets married. And then natural relations happen between her and her husband. She has a child. So when she gets married, she's a virgin, but obviously doesn't continue to stay a, stay a virgin. And then from the consummation of that marriage, a child is born and that child's name is Emmanuel. And then verse 15, that child will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. So the child is weaned and he knows right from wrong. It's your two-year-old or your three-year-old. That when you look at them and say, don't do that, they look back and go, sure. And they do it anyway. When the child knows right from wrong, when the child is weaned, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Within two to three years after that child is born, you will be delivered from Aaron and Israel, Aram and Israel. In other words, in three years, maybe four, I'm going to show you that Israel will not defeat you. Now, what's astounding, remember Ahaz at the beginning of this, verse 2, it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, the Israelites have Aram. And they're terrified, their, their hearts are shaking like the trees of the forest. And the sign is, Emmanuel, God is with you. Israel has Aram. You have God. Guess who wins? Now, as far as Isaiah knows, the prophecy's over. It's a great prophecy. It's an astounding prophecy. And it begins to be fulfilled in chapter 8 when Isaiah takes a wife 
and she has a son. But now what Matthew is telling us, what the angel is telling Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, is that when that story was told, there was a backstory, an underneath story, a further story. It wasn't just about Isaiah, but it was about another virgin. This time, not just a virgin until the time of marriage, but a virgin who stayed a virgin and pregnant at the same time and had a son called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And just as Isaiah's sign, excuse me, Isaiah's son was a sign of God's presence, Christ came as the fulfillment of God's presence with God's people. The uniqueness of Jesus' kingship is that it was promised in the Old Testament. It's really, really astounding. What's even more astounding is that he came as a uniquely acting king. Because kings come to rule their people. And certainly the Lord Jesus Christ, King, does. But he also comes to be with his people. To come alongside his people. To minister with his people. To minister to his people. He is the King who calls his people friend, brother, and ultimately bride. That's no ordinary king. And that's the way Jesus came. The prophet has spoken. Jesus is coming by means of a virgin birth. Now the only question is, what's Joseph going to do with all this? The king's arrival. He comes to a unique father, quote unquote. Now we understand, before you get all theological on me, we understand that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Okay? Jesus was born of a virgin in an astounding birth. But Joseph was the stepfather. In fact, Luke chapter 2, the story about Jesus staying behind in Jerusalem in the temple when he was 12 years old, Luke calls both Mary and Joseph his parents, attributing fatherly status to him and then later in that story also calls him his father and so he's he's a stepfather he fulfills that fatherly role in jesus life as he's growing up and the question is how is this earthly father stepfather going to respond to this announcement come back to verse 19 you just thought i skipped it i didn't skip it i was holding it and joseph her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. I've already indicated that word righteous simply means that he's an Old Testament believer. He is one who's been saved by faith and he lives by faith. And the question is, what does a faithful man do in this circumstance? When your wife is pregnant and it's not your baby, what do you do? He... He has a dilemma. He has a a few options. He could have gone through the marriage and said, the child is mine. 
But his own sense of morality and righteousness seems to preclude that. To marry her would have suggested that he'd been immoral as well. And that he was simply getting married to, quote-unquote, do the right thing. To marry her would have damaged his reputation as a righteous man. He could have exposed her. He could have said, that child is not mine. He could have taken her before the priests. And according to Deuteronomy's law, he could have had her stoned. He could could have divorced her. He could have sent her away, done it in a public fashion. Deuteronomy 24 would have allowed for that. And what we notice about all of the options that were at his disposal is that, as one commentator says, an informal canceling of the betrothal was impossible. You can't just say, never mind, I didn't mean it. You can't just say, well, let's just kind of drift apart. And you go on with your life and I'll go on with my, my wife, my life. There's no easy way out. And so Joseph makes his decision. He's going to put her away. He's going to divorce her. That's his right. But he's going to send her away secretly, privately. He's not going to publicly disgrace her. It was a public betrothal, but it's going to be a private divorce. He doesn't want to disgrace her. He doesn't want his pound of flesh. He's not indignant. He's not self-righteous. He's not demanding his rights. It appears to him that that she has sinned. He not only doesn't want to put her to death, it appears that he doesn't want her to experience the shame and humiliation that would come from the dissolution of their marriage. So he sends her away secretly or wants to. At, at some point, it would be evident in the community that the marriage didn't happen. Somebody would be looking at their calendar, whatever they used for a calendar in those days, and they'd say, hey, wait, wait a minute, wasn't, wasn't this the weekend that Joseph and Mary were getting married? Didn't we have an invitation of the wedding? I never heard anything more about that. What happened? And Joseph's intent was to do it as quietly as possible. He could have gone before two witnesses and simply with just cause terminated the betrothal, terminated the marriage. Didn't have to do it in a court of law. Could have done it privately. And that's his decision. He's resolute. He's made his way, made his plan. It was as gracious as possible. And then the angel shows up and says, let me tell you something you don't know. And it utterly transforms his perspective. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. Verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Because he was righteous, he took Mary as his wife. He kept his vows, was not fearful of what others might think of him or of her or of the child. And because he was righteous, notice what else it says, he kept her as a virgin until she gave birth. Now, side note, sidebar. 
She was a virgin when Jesus was born. She was not a virgin when all the other children were born. All the other children were born naturally. She was not a perpetual virgin as the Roman Catholics teach. But she was only a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And then ultimately she and Joseph came together naturally. But until that time when Jesus was born, though married, he kept her purity. Joseph did. And then when the baby was born, he calls him Jesus. He wouldn't carry Joseph's name. He wouldn't carry his earthly father's name. He would carry his heavenly father's name. Jesus, excuse me, God saves Yeshua, Jesus, Emmanuel. So the account of Mary and Joseph and their marriage and all the events surrounding it are not ultimately about them, are they? They're about the arrival of the unique God-man, Jesus Christ. It's tempting to read these accounts and think, wow, that's really astounding. If I'm Mary, or if I'm Joseph, what would I have done? Would I have been able to follow through and be obedient in the way they were? At that age, would I have followed suit? And certainly there might be some lessons to learn there. We can observe their humble faith and their obedience, and we can imitate those attributes, but that's not why those stories were given. These stories were given to reveal to us the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and to elicit our worship and our delight. We have one who is uniquely worthy of worship, the unique king of Israel, the unique king of all men. Father, we thank you that this... Christmas season enables us to remember again the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, to remember His glories, to remember His magnitude, to remember His uniqueness. Might we find delight in Him as we contemplate His arrival, which was unique. In the history of the world. And might we remember. His kingship. Which likewise. Is unique. In the history of the world. And might that drive us. To satisfaction in him. Contentment in him. Peace in him. As we consider. The astounding, glorious, wonderful arrival of the unique King, King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.